Let's, uh, let's thank the Lord. Dear Lord, we're very grateful again for another day before you as, as uh, people who are uh, intrigued, interested, wanting to know what it is we enjoy in marriage and how to please you. We ask you to watch over our, our hearts and our minds. In your son's name, amen. Well, we are on page 10. Having attitudes. Now, how do I go at this without creating any attitudes? Um, we, are, we talked yesterday about these defining elements of marriage being sustaining and avowed sexual membership. And that the quality of those three things combined is the quality of your marriage. The joy, the peace, the love, the passion you have. The reasons that the, the biblical understandings and reasons you bring, the control of your own life before God, the combination of the two of you in membership controlling your lives before God by the Holy Spirit, the quality of your relationship is the reflection of that. So when we get to attitudes, and actually I don't know if you probably suspected this already, we're not talking about good ones. <laughs> Go, live long and prosper. Be loving, kind, patient. Uh, have good attitudes all, all day long. They help marriages. It's the bad ones that we're a little concerned with. But um, we, we want you to think that so many times the attitudes that are disruptive to marriage, um, they're always so incredibly justified excuses made for them. You seem like you're, although you're miserable, you think like, you, th you seem like you're doing the right thing. You actually, my father went to speak at Calvary Chapel a few months ago in Seattle and, and he spoke on bitterness, as usual, and it was a good church and good people and he didn't think he was, but he did, a lot of people. And he said it was one of the things that surprises him, never ceases to surprise him, that bitter people think they are righteous in their bitterness. Because they've got this whole thing worked out of how bad the other person was. They're just holding they and God, or just can't wait to damn this person to eternal hell for their crimes, whatever they were. Uh, putting the toilet seat down, uh, leaving your socks not turned right side out. Those are really bad, I found out. Now, some people, before we get into the actual attitudes, might not have from one lesson last night talk just me affirming that uh, about sustaining a valid sexual membership by guidance of thought where you actually order your thinking to promote these things together. Well, what a boring way to go about life. They like that spontaneous um, they want to be one of those passionate people that always reacts passionately to the uh, world around them, which is wonderful. Those are really fun people in good times. Those are really fun people at the party. Those are really fun people in any situation where you like somebody who's just on the top of their game and they're, they're, they're reacting and they're hitting on all cylinders. 
problem is when they're not they're not hitting on all cylinders because they're principled people or they're rational people or biblical people or solid Christians they're doing that because they're passionate people the problem is when things go south in their life there's no control over stopping the reverse the negative the evil aspect of our passionate responses um, We can't seem to uh, uh, we can't take it's like taking heroin, you know it's heroin is people do it because it's fun, makes you feel real good, and you're addicted and you have these awful withdrawals or you become a criminal uh, in order to uh, maintain the habit. Um, you cannot stop if you have an unprincipled life, the chaos from affecting you. You have no grounds. You have no standing. Um, and you will have avoided dullness. I mean, some people think I live a dull life because I, I'm chubby and I stare at the walls. Uh, and they, they, as far as their definition goes, they may be very right. And I, and I would say, as I stand next to the train wreck of someone I am maybe having as a counseling opportunity or visiting someone in jail, um, yeah, they're not living a dull life like me. Because they, they, they cut loose the demons of their passion and you don't get to tell passions where they go. You don't get to tell your passions that she is not your wife, she is your secretary, she is he is not your husband, he's your OBGYN, and you can't stop yourself from falling in love with somebody else. Because you're a passionate person, spontaneous. And when things are going south, and then you're not building this a membership in Christ, where you're accounting for holiness, <coughs> both of you, and you're going to give your life over to always being ready to be spoken to by your urges, you're going to be led astray some way or another. And if, if that opportunity never happens to you, it's just a matter of that opportunity didn't come along. You may stay with your spouse faithfully all the days of your life, but it won't be a life of peace because it will be a life of constant needing to have your passions moved by circumstance. Um, it says in Proverbs 14 that a tranquil mind gives life to the flesh, but passion makes the bones rot. You say, of course, Evan, you found that verse. You probably went looking for it. You probably wrote it and put it in with your word processing uh, <laughs> gear. I didn't. Solomon wrote it. Um, it's a recommendation. Passion makes the bones rot. Tranquil gives life to the flesh. And I'm suggesting it's not saying, well, dull is better than exciting. I'm saying exciting stops being exciting when it becomes calamitous. When your marriage is on the skids, you don't know what to do, you don't know how to think, you can't approach the person closest to your in your life, your wife, and work it out because you have erected so many habits and barriers and so many crimes against each other of attitudes in this situation that they're not the person you can go to. You have to go talk to a pastor, a counselor, a friend, somebody who will tell you to go back and rethink this. That tranquility is a far more life-giving um, state than passion is, TV notwithstanding. It's a, uh, 
What? TV. Uh, TV tells us otherwise. TV tells us that party time is the is the best time. Uh, the weekend is the everyone lives for the weekend. Everybody is trying to do um, excitement, one excitement after another, one more girl after another, one more um, gunfight after another. Life has got to be exciting. No one wants to be the farmer who's standing in the background and gets shot. <laughs> <laughs> All those dead people that Bruce Willis runs past who get caught in the explosion when he doesn't, that's us. Okay, those are the tranquil people. We die. But of course, that's only when you write the script so that the hero and the passion and the excitement works out and he always gets blown clear. He can always walk away from an explosion without looking back. You know that's cool. So... Um, so I'm not arguing for dull over exciting. I'm saying exciting occurs for the tranquil. There are dull people out there. Okay, truly dull people. They're not, they're just people who nothing fun happens to and don't think either. Okay, they don't think, they don't plan, they don't develop principle, they don't engage with each other at all. So it's not tranquility, it is dull. But don't, don't say because of the two... Um, seem to have similar qualities that one's not having a real life. And the calamity that occurs, we're talking about attitudes more than we are talking about sexual infidelity. Sexual infidelity happens and happens too often in Christian circles. Divorces happen in Christian circles. Uh, drunkenness, porn addiction, um, what else? Stuff. Murder doesn't happen so much. Um, but it does happen. My father just two years ago was counseling a young Christian man who had murdered his wife and kid here in town. Christian guy. Christian family. Murdered his wife and kid. Burned the place down to cover his crime. Lied to my father persistently in jail while he was waiting for trial. He's in prison now. He did it. He said, what had to happen there? Because, you know, adultery and drunkenness and murder don't just suddenly occur to the husband lying in bed one night. He looks over at the wife and says, I think I could smother her. <laughs> Let's try that. <laughs> you know, Leslie's got him on that CPAP machine. Leslie could just kink the hose. <laughs> and uh, I'd be gone. That easy? That easy. <laughs> that easy. You'll get some of your money back if I'm not here tomorrow. Um, well, no, Leslie, you're not getting any of your money back. Um, the real problem is not counseling people through adultery situations or through murder situations. It happens. But that's not where Christian marriages are on the skids. They're in the skids and the, the attitudes. There is, there, you, you find yourself drifting apart. Membership is it's sort of an anti-membership device of the evil one. To have attitudes be cherished, bad attitudes, cherished by uh, the people in the marriage. It's, I think it might be worth pointing out that bad attitudes aren't just bad attitudes. They're sin. So they're sin like Murder and lying and drunkenness. But they're acceptable in Christian They're acceptable sins. Yeah. By the Christian culture, not by the Lord. He considers it evil, I believe. And generally had things that attitudes 
like if anyone lusts after a woman, everyone hates his brother in his heart, you're guilty of murder. In the Lord's mind, you're being the same kind of wicked. Um, and you need to be thinking of it as wicked, not just the ebb and flow of um, life. That this is what life is. That, that anybody who says, no, we're not going to be sinning, and if we do, we're going to be confessing it. Okay? That's our, our default. We better be there. If those people are viewing, I have a little note here at the bottom of the page about people think that these attitudes, these moments, these tiffs, these fights, these, de these dissensions are uh, these moods that descend on the home, the silent treatment, whatever you want to call it, um, are like spiders in the house. And you know that they're there, you know, they live around and they wander the cobwebs in the morning and whatever, but you're not going to fumigate the house for every spider. But you get one mouse showing up, one rat. That's what these are. They're rats. And you don't want, you know they're getting into everything. You know they're after your food. We see, we've had, I don't know, five, ten mice in 30 years. But the next day, we're buying traps, we're setting, you know, people are on the watch. We're going to kill that thing. We're going to get rid of it. That's what an attitude is. Because you know that there's a pernicious nature. A spider doesn't know you exist. It's just living a life in some very small world, trying to kill other bugs. And mice are trying to take your life from you. They're trying to, they spread disease. They're big. They're like this in this house. This is a big house. <laughs> I have in Proverbs here, on the second column there, it just says Proverbs. You say, what chapter of it? Well, it's not just one chapter. It's actually a series of chapters. One, two, three, four, five times. In Proverbs, Solomon decided that this issue needed to be addressed. A foolish son is a ruin to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. 21.9. It is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. 21.19. It is better to live on a desert island, desert land, than with a contentious and fretful woman. 25-24, it is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a contentious woman. 27-15, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. He had this on the mind. <laughs> to restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in his right hand. In other words, it can't be done. Contentiousness. Quarreling. Solomon had a thousand wives, if you count the concubines. He had studied them, and as he said, one righteous woman in a thousand I have not found. One righteous man in a thousand I have found, but one righteous woman in a thousand I have not found. Now, maybe he was jaded by that many women, <laughs> and he was disobedient to the Lord in having that many women, and uh, all sorts of things could be, but he had studied them. He had been, as he said, his wisdom had not departed from him. But this is a big problem. And it's just one of the attitudinal divisions, that which unmarries people. Contention is, is taking a different stance, is pushing the other person away, not trying to blend the two of you. Contention is trying to stake out your own. Now, we're going to be looking at... Um, a little bit later, some of the attitudes, but I want to get to it 
uh, so that you know what the Lord thinks of these attitudes. One, one thing is, big, is clear in the Lord uh, Jesus' teaching about whitewashed tombs, people who are whitewashed on the outside. Now yesterday, Leslie made a comment about how our public reputation, pottering old duffer and uh, Nazi, um, uh, was uh, what we look like in the outside world. But we, have a, uh, we think that our principled life together, our public life, is responsible for the love and the passion we have in private. We, it's a natural cause and effect. That's what makes that punctuation happen. The problem is there are a lot of people who have church face and the way they are at home. Church, you know, you know what that the, the people who get everybody smiling and buffed into Sabbath elegance and off they go to church and they and they 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 um, uh, speak somewhat kindly to each other or but they're not doing that at home. Um, is your public face uh, consistent with your private? Would you dare to have it consistent with your private? Not have it be the thing. You won't find Leslie and me making out in the living room. Well, unless they sneak up. Then you <laughs> snuck up on us, maybe. <laughs> Even then. Now, but if you did, you wouldn't go, oh, gross. Oh, you ain't go, oh, gross. But you, would, you, wouldn't, um, you wouldn't say, oh, that doesn't make any sense at all. You, you uh, seem to hate each other in real life. <laughs> no. They say, well, you, we, we get along in real life. We function, like, hopefully, like Christians in real life. And the reward is making out in the living room without you walking in. <laughs> now, could you have what you have private. I have no idea what you have privately because I'm not there. I'm not sneaking up on you. <laughs> and is the private condition of your life what God asks your private and public condition to be? You might change the degree of intimacy, but it's the same being. Are you pretending to be something else? I have a little poem here that I wrote called Mostly Christian. I will recite it for you. The husband he gets angry still. The wife at slights annoyed can be. The husband petulant and shrill, while wife depressed by all till she makes her husband's patience thin when she anxious asks where he's been. The husband's proud offense disdains her fearful comment on the ditch at which his sullen driving aims. Mostly Christian, still has the itch to be a bastard blind in vain, which leaves a mostly Christian bitch to drink her bile to kill the pain. Now, I know too many people in the church who hide a very difficult woman aspect, better performance at church, difficult husband aspect at home, angry, annoyed, um, shouting, fights, etc., cleaned up for the, for the synagogue. You have to, Christ, God, does not allow that to go on. We may be fooled. We can be caught flat-footed sometimes by somebody suddenly getting divorced. You know, uh, um, some of you knew Rick Storm. And he had a great reputation among the young men here in town. People, guys looked up to him. 
And his daughter said how much the biggest problem was the years that, that she had to pretend in public that her father was a good man. That, she felt the hypocrisy of her own and she wasn't even involved in the marriage. You don't want to be that person. And nobody else can get in there because nobody else is seeing that. Maybe some very wise person or a good friend might spot something, but if you're not going to be seen doing it, that means you are the ones that are going to stand before the living God with your attitudes that you give to your wife. And the wife's attitude they give to their husbands. And I have to explain that to God. You may have to face the calamity of that kind of sin earlier because that's what's going to tear a marriage down. You won't, if you stay together for the good of the children or because of the embarrassment, you won't enjoy staying together. You won't be married. You won't have sustained the vow or the sex or the marrying, the membership. There's nothing in this world, you remember Jesus, um, leader of our religion, our God. Okay. Um, he was tempted in every manner like his way, yet without sin. There is no circumstance that your husband or your wife can do to you, or a circumstance at work, <coughs> that you can say required you to be evil. So, if you're evil in your attitudes... It wasn't the circumstance. It wasn't him or her. It was you. So you had better deal with it. You can't push this off on your spouse. Well, she... You know, sorry, not allowed. You could be right with God. Well, my dad... I had a guy phone me from Seattle. He was getting angry with his kids. It was the marriage question. He said, I come home from work, and they, they're insolent and uh, insubordinate. And I just, um, just I'm, I'm irritable when I'm coming home, come home from work. And, and I said, well, why don't you come home joyful? Why do you think that having a hard day at work is a special dispensation from God to be irritable? You rejoice in the Lord always. So you better fix you first. You come home joyful and tired. They get a tired dad, but he's loving. They get a tired dad, but he's kind and patient. He's tired. That's the only thing work required of you, to be tired. Your soul in rebellion against God was your excuse for sin. And he thought, well, how can I make the kids behave better? So I don't get, well, you behave better. We have to always think unilaterally of what we're doing. Our Lord was tempted in every manner, yet without sin. Um, there is a... Uh, Another aspect I want you to think about, Leslie thinks I mentioned it last night, I don't recall if I did, but, but then she realized she hears me talk so much in our membership um, that, uh, that she's heard it, knows, she knows I've said it. Um, when you have a bad attitude and you don't want to give it up, you know <laughs> what you've done. I think you're all, I don't have to give an illustration, you've got a number of them running through your head. Now, Think of those moments, and what is, because your spouse will say something like, well, well, what, you know, is something wrong? Now, of course there is. You're evil. <laughs> but we're not going to go there. We don't say, 
Oh, my dear, my hun, snuggle buddies. I'm being evil right now. You don't actually tell them what they're, what's going on. You excuse it. You come up with something that, that sounds like it's plausible. I'm tired. Uh, well, it's my PMS. I, I don't want to hear it. Well, Jesus never had PMS. Yeah, I give you that. But he was crucified. A little, a little harsher than a headache and water weight gain. But we have excuses because we believe that we're trying to convince the, the other party, the member of your life, the, the spouse, that this excuse was actually your reason. Okay? Now, excuses come afterwards. Reasons, you have them before. Reasons you could have been asked about before anything happened, and you would have volunteered the information. Yes, if you come home late, honey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a pan against the wall. That's what my basic principle of mine. To, I believe that throwing articles of kitchenware is what a Christian should do in a moment like that. Husband coming home late from work. You wouldn't ever give your real reasons. Your real reasons is you're selfish. You want it your way, and it didn't go your way. And you better confess it. But excuses pretend to be reasons. My father, I got this from Jim Wilson, so you know it's true. <laughs> he says there's a difference between reasons and excuses. Whenever we would be excusing something generally in front of him, and he would say, what's the reason? Tell me what the reason is. And suddenly you begin to realize the real reason is I'm evil. I wanted it my way. When you're actually asked, when you have a bad attitude that you know the Lord does not approve of, your actual reason is, I wanted to sin. That's the title. And this is why I wanted to sin in this situation. My desires were X and they were not met. Or that I wanted to get my desires met. So the excuses, set them aside. You sound horrid if you ever tried to actually declare what kind of philosophy would produce that kind of um, bad, uh, bad attitude. Now, if you react with passions, and bad attitudes are when you have these, these reactions, I would hope that you don't say, you know, I, I really like the love, the joy, and peace stuff, but... <laughs> The patience, I'm not going to, I'm not, it's not a smorgasbord of the Lord's provision. But some people treat it that way. They want to keep certain ways of being, certain trip-wired attitudes that plague a marriage through centuries. And uh, if you don't, if you say, I'm going to leave that open to my urge, whatever the passionate urge is, I want to respond now. And ladies, don't think it makes you more feminine to be completely inexplicably, inexplicably the B word. It's not impressive. We don't like it. Better that you put a short skirt on, okay? Don't be a witch. Don't. You don't, it's, it's, it's not charming. It's evil. And in that evil, and guys, uh, they think they get masculine when they get angry. They start getting truculent and start, you know, 
being testosterone um, warriors, and it, it, it's not. Um, it, it it does not say. You know, this is this is Jesus. This is the Lord. This is how this is how he would react. Oh yeah, he got angry. Yeah, yeah. He was defending the temple. Thank you. Not your golf game. Not the fact that your forerunner is not working, and the wife then asks you to take the trash out. And well, a man's got standards. If you live by passion, you will then prompt passion. Passion will answer it. Unless you're lucky enough to have a spouse that is unilaterally following the Lord and being righteous in response to you. Okay? Talks about, now we'll cover this passage later in the week, uh, in Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, about a non-Christian husband, maybe one without a word when they see the behavior of their wives. When there's one Christian there doing the Christian thing, that could be a stopgap. But otherwise, you're a temptation to the other person. You're a temptation to the life around you. And passion begets passion. It's like the Hatfields and McCoys. It's going to be, it's going to be a feud. Someone will have to step in at some point and pull you up short and tell you what God's will is and hope it's not excommunication from the church. Hope it's not some great tragedy of your kids not believing the gospel because you're a pill. I have those passages to remind you throughout this. Romans 12, being transformed by the renewal of your mind. 1 Peter 1, gird up your minds, be sober, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, what we wanted to look at here is <coughs> passions of that, some passions that occur. We've got anger. I think these came from the, the poem. I think I did they were on my mind. Um, anger, annoyance, uh, petulance, depression, impatience, anxiety. Um, and just, just to say, um, what, uh, what is the Lord's principle? You know, the, the person who lives by principle, situation comes in. So instead of <coughs> vitriol, instead of blowing their stack, they um, answer kindly. When it says a kind answer turneth away wrath, do you have that even anyway? You know the proverb, but you don't. You don't have the capability because you don't have any of the principles. Any of the they haven't studied what's wrong and what's evil with you following your own way. Um, the two of you, in your good times, here's a here's a recommendation. Um, when you're aware, because you're such passionate people. When things are good, nobody wants to bring up the, the difficult topics because, well, hey, we're sleeping together, things are good, things are good, we're holding hands at the ball, and everything's wonderful, and, and, and then something happens. And then, if you try to talk about, while it's an issue, while it's a problem, then everybody wants to talk about the problem, and I know very well that the one way to keep my wife in a problem is to talk to her about it in the midst of it. Okay? It, it just gets more, more tears is what you get. Um, so yeah, there's their tactics to that, but we're not going to go into that. But um, please do. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, we talked a little bit about last night with, with Tyler and Ashley and I about uh, um, what, if you have the standard default agreement of what your life is supposed to be becoming before the Lord, you have talked about that in your life. She knows, he knows, whoever's in sin in the matter. They're in sin. 
and you know that the Lord loves them, you know the Holy Spirit is convicting them, and you give some time for adequate amount of time for them to go, yeah, I'm the wrong one. And then, not too soon, whatever that means, you go have a visit with them. Find out, how's it going? You're taking care of it. Because you've both agreed in the contract that that's what you do when you're in sin. You take care of it. And when somebody is weeping over nothing, the dish rag not being wrung out properly, you know, not just that. It's not going to be just that. It's going to be that at the end of a, you know, a day from Hades, you know. And, uh, you know, one of the kids knocked his front tooth out on the playground and you had to drive around and, and he lost their lunch. He had to drive back up to school to take him a new lunch. And, and then somebody didn't wring out the dish rag. <laughs> so you find your wife sobbing over the sink. He said, why don't you go upstairs and have a little time? Not time out, a little time. <laughs> it's not punishment. It's uh, because rejoicing in the Lord is what we're supposed to be doing. And if somebody ain't, somebody's got to go deal with it. And they're Christians. Your spouse is a Christian. Now, what? You know, I hope that none of you guys are found crying over the sink because of some carburetor problem or, or a flat tire. I don't want you crying because it's gay. But, um, so, uh, but, but th those and other, uh, I don't want to wander too far on, on that, but uh, feel free to chat with either of us. Leslie probably has a, a more acute notion um, of it and knows what makes her feel uh, cared for, protected, and guided toward the Lord. Because that's where it's got to go. Sin in the camp, it's got to go. How are you going to get rid of it? You need to have planned. In this case, this is the segue back in. In the good times, you've got to be thinking about the plan for your life. You've got to be talking about those things. Not just say, I'm going to coast for as long as possible because the old lady or the old man is behaving him, herself, and they're not being their usual, you know, or their difficult portions, so let's not bring it up. Find ways to bring it up, because studying these things, what the Lord says, about anger. I mean, the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God, it says in the scriptures, right? Down James, James chapter 1. It says, let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. What do you think you're doing when you're getting anger? Well, I, well you think you're working righteousness, because that's what anger is about. It's, the problem is your righteousness offended. Now you know that God says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. It's not that anger isn't deserved in some wicked situations, but I'm told by my God, through his holy apostles, to leave it to him. He is going to deal with it. What does he say? For vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will tend to it. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And your enemy being your spouse of all people? Tragically, all too often. And these anger issues, vengeance, because anger is your attempt. What anger does... It is a heat sink for your attitude. They did X wrong, so I'm going to 
throw something, I'm going to fume, I'm going to curse, I'm going to do whatever I do as an expression of anger. And I hope, without hitting my wife, that they feel a little punished because you're feeling like righteousness offended. You want to have them feel something, pain, punishment somehow. <coughs> Ungodly people actually punch their wives, beat their wives, kill their wives because they're that annoyed. They're that angry. Now you say to yourself, I would never, but sin, sin, folks. And um, now I'm. I don't struggle with anger. I might struggle with some other things, but not anger. I lost my temper last 1969. So I'm, I'm bottled up. I was going to explode any, <laughs> any minute. But I don't get angry. I, don't, I, I think I don't care enough <laughs> about stuff. Too much of a futilitarian. I've, 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 I've breathed it for too long. Now... But, but it's not a matter of, well, Evan, you're saying that. I'm not, it's St. It's Paul here. I think Paul, he was going around killing Christians. He seemed to have an anger problem. <laughs> what was the phrase that says, and Paul was going around breathing threats and murder? That was the scriptural description of St. Paul, breathing threats and murder. And it was righteousness offended. It was righteousness offended. He was a good Pharisee. These were heterodox, unorthodox individuals, these Christians. Got to kill them. Typical Middle Eastern reaction. Now, so, and he's telling you, that's what you have to look at. You have to say, this is not what your Lord wants. Now, you're going to say, well, what? Well, what am I, it's not, it tells me what's right. Um, How it directly, that's just general Christianity, okay? What anger is, why you're not allowed to do it. Um, or very limited. You say, "Be angry, but do not sin." Uh, you worry after the, worry about doing the righteous anger after you've taken care of all the unrighteous anger. Okay? Don't say, "I think there still exists a category called righteous anger." Yeah, but you haven't never had it. <laughs> okay, so uh, give that one up. Take care of it. Then maybe God can use you to get angry at some point. But what you have to Ephesians five down here at the bottom says, "For no man hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body." When now there may be some people who pound their hand with a hammer when it misses something; it doesn't pick up the screw adequately. You go, "Oh, wham!" Well, no, you don't, because it's a it's I'm connected to it. You know, it will it will give me an immediate signal that that hammer really hurt and I don't really need to punish it for not picking up the screw adequately or holding the tack. We take care of our own members. Practically speaking, you developing this membership with one another where the government of your holiness is done together, the government of your sexuality is done together, not just sex done together, that's sort of automatic, but... but Everything is done in membership so that you feel you feel connected to this woman or to this man in such a way that you avoid trying to put the pain to them. That's what anger tries to do. It tries to punish. It's, try, it's trying to believe, I'm still separate from you because I can hurt you for what you did or how you did it or what you failed to do. 
It means you're just proving that you're walking further away. You haven't gotten close, you're working further away. You're not. We, we nourish and cherish our bodies when we're members. And you have to say, do you want Christ to deal with you? That's the basic golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would be done by. And if the Lord, if you want to say, oh yes, Lord, really flip out on me every time. Really get angry. I mean, angry, like God angry when I sin next. Or when I just am an idiot. Just get, or I just forget. Be really angry. No, we don't want that. We love the Lord's forgiveness. We love the Lord's grace. We love the Lord's kindness. You got anything yet? Jump in. Mm, no, not really. I'm saying everything, huh? Yeah. Annoyance is the next one. I'm afraid you might get angry. Yeah. <laughs> and 69. I think it was, I forget what month it was in 69. August, maybe. I remember what, what? Was it the heat? No, it was the haircut. <laughs> I, uh, um, Diane, could you tell this story? He's heard it a lot. I've heard it a number of times. <laughs> the, uh, I think I was in 60, uh, I was in uh, just before my 10th grade year, and I was growing my hair out in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was reading Mein Kampf at the time by Adolf Hitler, because um, that was the book I was carrying when it happened. And uh, my father had asked me to get my hair trimmed for my mother's sake. And I said, fine, no problem, because my parents said I could grow my hair long, they just wanted it neat and clean, and, and my mother asked for it to be trimmed, and I said, okay. My father took me next door to, from his ministry bookstore there at the University of Michigan, instructed the barber to give me a trim, and left. I sat down in the chair, and I came away with hair this short. <laughs> and I didn't know what was happening. I wasn't looking in a mirror as it was going on. He just cut all my hair off. I went back to the bookstore where my dad was. I handed him Mein Kampf, which I don't know what he thought of that at the moment, but... And he looked at me, and the guys got wide. He didn't say anything. I said, would you take this home for me? And I walked out, and I walked across Ann Arbor to home, went up to my room, and kicked the wall, and lost my temper. And it was the last time I cried, too. Um, cried, just angry, until I felt, got so tired of being angry, I fell asleep. I fell asleep, slept through dinner, slept through everything, you know. Humiliated when I got up, you know, but... Uh, the hair grew back. <laughs> but that was the last time. I didn't lose my strength. I gained strength. <laughs> yeah. um, annoyance, like, annoyance isn't like, anger is a temper, you know? It's something where you blow up. You, 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 uh, annoyance is that low ebb, that low moment. Um, and... What you're going to notice about this, this, it all, this and petulance and depression, impatience, all have to do with whether or not the God of your world is being served. The problem is the God of your world is you. That's why you're annoyed. Your way hasn't been met. And that's why you are annoyed by people. You know, rarely are we annoyed by someone's sin against God. 
we might be disgusted. We might be maybe offended by someone's gross sin. But rarely are we annoyed because you know what? We're not defending that ethic. We're defending the ethic of, are you doing it my way? And a lot depends on what kind of self-confidence you have, what kind of annoyance it is. Or petulance, uh, it has to do with, that's the stamping of the foot. That's knowing that it's not going your way and you're going to express yourself petulantly so that it will force everybody to turn around and go back and make sure that you're made happy because they didn't pick out the video you wanted at the video store. Or you didn't go to Burger King even though you expressly said not McDonald's, Burger King. And so the way you behave, the little princess, is going to make everyone feel it until everyone obeys the goddess or the little god. Um, and you're a much more harsh deity than the living god. Um, it tells us in Thessalonians, and we exhort you, brethren, this is one of my favorite verses, admonish the idlers, Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. You're supposed to be, if you're going to be a little god, if you're going to be in charge of something, if you're going to be ministering to others about how they live their life, correcting them about the wringing out the dish rag, whatever it is you're going to be doing, the obli obligation of you is to be a servant of God, representing his heart. He is patient. He who did not, what is that, love does not insist on its own way? You, know, you can't collect your attitudes. Make a list. What am I usually? Ask your spouse. In one of the good moments, <laughs> you know, maybe, you know, you had a romantic dinner and you're kind of looking for something to talk about because after a few years of being married, you're looking for stuff to talk about it over these dinners out. You don't want to be that old couple that just sits there and eats their bread pudding. Um, and never says anything. You got something to talk about. Say, hi, would you make a list, an honest list, of the attitudes that I obviously struggle with? Make a list. I want to know. I need to confess it. I need to forsake it. Um, and you begin to realize the Bible really has short shrift with any kind of attitude uh, decay. When, when love is the source of the Christian ethic, that's the new covenant. It's no longer the law of the Jews, it's now love, because love does not wrong its neighbor. Well, love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. If you do, we're not saying, we're not preaching sinless perfectionism. We're preaching the, the pursuit of holiness, that you do not have any patience with your own sin. When you do sin, you have an advocate. It says in 1 John, I'm writing these things to you, my brethren, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a place to turn. But we've got to have it clear in our mind that we did wrong. So that, that things like petulance that you were trained in since you were three because you were pretty, or depression. The, the petulant person is the... Is the um, well, she was really always pretty. Usually girls struggle with petulance. Men and women struggle with depression. Because women very much become the fated darling. And the little... You know, you've seen those shows about Sweet Sixteen parties 
that Bridezilla. Bridezillas, you know, they, they, these awful, awful, awful people who should be shot and left in a ditch. You know, that's what, not because I'm angry or anything, but <laughs> just justice. Um, petulant people manipulate to get their way. They don't want to see it go not their way. They're going to manipulate. So they're much more up, confident, insistent. Depressed people, it starts to go against them, and they, they know, yeah, it's going to go against me. And the only person who's going to pay attention to me adequately is me. So I'm going to go to my room now. I'm going to, I'll be back in a week. And you lie in bed, and you're depressed. Because the person you love the most has been ignored by the rest of the world, and they haven't obeyed you. And if only you had power, you could destroy them. <laughs> but you don't. You will never have it fulfilled. You're catering to what the, the self, the offense, the self has taken. Now this, what you're bringing into the situation is something that is at war with the other person. We have not blended completely, though the desire is to attempt it, to go after it. So there's this other person in your life called your spouse that is the victim. And tragically, if both of you are dealing with bad attitudes... The anger of the husband, the, the fits of rage, whatever, other things like that. Husband depressed, wife anxious. Um, St. Paul didn't complain of the circumstance of his life, Philippians 4. Not that I complain of want, or have any, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Have you learned? If you haven't learned... Do you realize not knowing, not knowing will mean you don't have a principle at the ready when a state of want comes along, when the car breaks down, when you can't afford X that you needed to get. You can't be content. You don't have the principle worked out. Because you, something I didn't say earlier, if you don't have a principle, if you haven't worked out the reasons for life, you will do something, and you will have an inertial force. And you have, I think, uh, you might think of more than these. I've thought of four inertial forces. One is principles. Two is passion. Three is habit. Four is authority. Someone tells you to do it. You, get, you do something because someone told you. You just obey. Habit, we always did it that way. You don't even think habit. But other people, uh, passion or reasons. And if you haven't worked out how to be content in whatever state you are. You're going to be passionate. You're going to have a reaction that isn't pretty. Now, it, we also have here at the bottom of the page, impatience. Well, you, you can't even say that. It's sin in the title. You know, it, you, you can say, well, you know, anger, it could be good. Impatience. Well, he, love is patient. Love is kind. Are you ready, able to wait? I have this, this passage out of Luke 6. I didn't have it last time we were, gave this talk. I wasn't thinking about it. But this passage out of Luke 6 has been on my mind for months now. And it's where the Lord says, Love your enemies. This is in the side column. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. 
Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. He is kind to the ungrateful and selfish. Is your Christianity that kind of kindness as you gather around a a fellowship of like-minded people who all equivalently same level of economics and the same kind of dress code and the same kind of enjoyments and you all hang out together and you think that you're a kind person? No. What you find out if you're kind is when that person who's not in your set, who doesn't dress like you, doesn't behave like you like, um, treats you like dirt. Then, if your sons are the most high, you are kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. There's the measure. Do you have the principles in hand? Have, you, have the two of you prayed for the principles? The two together, not praying, hoping that the spouse does it too. You're not just individual Christians anymore. You're Christians in membership. Just like the church does things together because we are members of the body of Christ. We are the bride of the Lord. We are that little image of the church in Christ ourselves and we have to be expressing. Remember, the membership is that metaphor for Christ and the church. And we need to together be pulling up the fruit of the Spirit and going, okay, what, how, should we, how should we approach this? How are we going to look at this so that our minds are ready? We prayed before this week before you all showed up, we knew there was going to be a strained week in our schedule. Last week was a strained week. Last week was a strained week, and we were, we, our car's in Portland, and then my father's car was stolen because he obeyed this lending something without expecting anything in return, and guess what? It didn't come back. But... Mm. Just a number of things happened, and then we had to play catch-up and get ready for this. So we were praying in our prayer time, knowing what was going to descend on us, not having any idea what the temptations were going to be, but knowing you're going to be pulled out, stretched. You prayed yourself up, ready for that, so that you would go into your moments with the reasons of God. Not go into it, not thinking, collapse under the weight because I don't have reasons, and then with infighting and problems between the two of us, and then it suddenly bursts out in front of everybody. Everybody's embarrassed because there the lecturers are fighting in front of the class. <laughs> First time in 40 years. Um, you have to lay the groundwork for all these things. You have to address it. And you're going to, it's going to be reproof and correction. Anxiety. Boy, that was a, his, gee, are there any passages about anxiety? <laughs> now, I've known some anxious men. I've known some anxious women. It's destructive, folks. Be anxious over nothing. But with prayers and supplications, with thanksgiving, make your deeds known to God. And the peace of God but you've got to be doing something, right? You're, you're, you're husbanding, and husbands, there's a good reason we're called husbands, we husband things. It's like husbandry. You run a farm, you run, a, you run animals. Animal husbandry. It's not like you're married to animals. You're husbanding them. You're crafting their lives. You husbands are supposed to be the pastors of your home. Crafting this broad knowledge. I got all these passages. I, didn't have, I ran out of room. I had to not pick some things and not put it in because I crammed them all in here. Don't fear, but fear God. Don't fear those who can kill you. I know, I know families almost destroyed by uh, uh, the anxiety, be it some tax evasion, 
you know, right-wing militia type of father, and his anxieties about the coming apocalypse, dragging his family out to live in a Quonset hut under the ground in North Idaho, or something like that, or some wife afraid of everything that Christ, you know, um, there's a lot of things on TV that, that tell you to be afraid. Every insurance company and commercial tells you to be afraid. The Lord is telling you, what are you thinking? You cannot, by worry, add one cubit to your span of life. As the Lord says here, if you're not able to do a small thing, such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? You can't extend your life, idiot. <laughs> now, do you, do, you, do you understand in the, in, the, in the laying the groundwork, in the membership, you've got in your husband's got to say, yeah, if we did that, we'd be idiots. <laughs> we don't want to be idiots. Yet some I do. Um, to the ladies who are tempted to anxiety, when you find yourself anxious, you go to this uh, instant fix of, I'm going to pray about it. And so you go to the Lord and you start telling the Lord all your anxieties. Well, that's really not the same as confessing anxious uh, anxiety. Um, confessing is saying, I'm anxious and it's wrong. I need to be forgiven. Not, Lord, I'm so scared that something's going to happen to my kid or my husband or we're not going to be able to pay the bill. Or whether you, you go to him and you ask him to provide or whatever, but you don't go be anxious on your knees. You confess the anxiety. That's why it says, with prayers and supplications, with thanksgiving, yes. make your needs known. You can tell God your needs, but you got to give it to him and thank him for, you know, for that. Thank you, Lord, for taking that. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, which passes all understanding. But if you're not walking away from your prayer free, you didn't give it to the Lord. You don't, you then you say, well, why not? Well, you might not trust the Lord. You might have these ideas that maybe your husband's supposed to provide all the security and you, and you, you haven't practiced trusting God. That whatever he decides to do, whatever you end up with, you can be content. You mean anxiety is a sin? Yeah. Say it. When it says, forgot that one. I, I would say it's the kind, not the kind of sin like, you know, sleeping around. But it's the kind of sin that sits as a temptation to you in your life. You, if you suddenly fear it, it, it the, the fear is a temptation. Do I hang on to it? Do I let it start to define my life and my marriage and my relationships? Do I start to have it dictate how I? act? Uh, is it an attitude for me, an anxiety attitude? Um, or um, do I uh, train to give it to God? Um, so I, I don't consider the anxiety or the presence of it. I sinned by being um, worried about my kid driving across the state for the first time in their car. You know, As soon as that raises itself in me, I know what I'm supposed to do. If I, if I don't give it to the Lord, if I say, this is delectable, I'm going to keep this, this uh, feeling of worry, uh, which cause we, makes us, us feel like a better parent, a more loving parent. It's how we express love, is to be miserable. So, it's an illusion of control. Yeah. That's a, a lot of maybe fathers that can 
control their whole family and what their kids do and what they're, you know, to, and over, you know. And it's hard to give it up even to the living God. They don't want to give the kid up to making their own decisions in life even, but but let alone uh, trust in God that you've done enough in your child rearing that you can let them be what they want to be even if they make those mistakes. But, again, uh, I, I, I don't want to have it be uh, merely saying that if I am... It's like grief or sadness. I, I can't hang on to those things. I, I have, I've given a certain... That's a natural response, but it's not a natural keep. Yeah, you can't keep it. I like to think of the Proverbs 31 woman who laughs at the days to come. Anxiety is a fear of something out there in the future that hasn't happened that might. And the godly woman laughs at the days to come. Right, and the Lord tells you, you're not allowed to think about tomorrow. That's the kind of <laughs> Appalachian way to say tomorrow, because we have Appalachians here. Thank you. <laughs> okay. That was close enough. <laughs> close enough. Uh, you were told earlier the passage we've looked at that you're not allowed to live in the passions of your former ignorance. You're, you're about getting this worked out. The membership you have, this is, this is a, a great time too. It's not, oh, we gotta, do we have to do our Bible reading together now? Let's just skip it today. It's, we're not doing little spiritual exercises, okay? You're getting married. That's what you're doing. You're, um, you've heard of sex, right? Oh, okay. Well, um, when when the fingers go together like this, you don't go. Oh, do we got? Oh, do we got? Really tonight too? What? We we know we actually have a good time having sex. Now, you also because the it's our expressing the married state. It's a metaphor for all sorts of things. And your membership, the efforts, the conversations, the walking around together, uh, discussing what we do about this, who we're praying for, what we're looking for, what warnings we have for ourselves about going into this situation. Sometimes, and sometimes there's some reproof or some... Re but you're, for everything you do, you're that much more members and that much more married. And you've governed that world that much better. And God looks on you and blesses you, answers your prayers. When a husband is told to honor the woman as the weaker vessel, it says, so his prayers may not be hindered. Because you're joint heirs of the grace of life, your prayers could be hindered. My walk with God, my blessing from God, is how well we're doing this. How, how much love and passion we have is how well we're doing this. We're getting rewarded every step of the way. These are not, this is not work. It's a deed you've got to do, but you're going to be doing it for the pleasure. Now, when uh, what comes up in the attitudes, uh, one of the natural things, I thought I'd better at least uh, bring it up, is that he said, what well, he did, you know, she did, you know, there's some blame very instantly found because it occurs in marriage, these attitudes, the annoyance, the anger, it's generally the spouse that's you know, responsible. And one of the natural excuses is always to bring up to them or to God, did you see what they did? The woman thou gavest me, Lord. And it does warn us, believe me, I know I have 
ruined my wife's day any number of times. Wilsons do not go through life getting bitter. We go through life causing bitter. Okay? Because we have loud opinions and we just high, wide, and handsome, and we spout off, and we think we're funny, and so we hurt our wife's feelings. So I know I've done that. And woe to him, Luke 17, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to him by whom they come. Just because I'm leaning on people about their attitudes, and unilaterally, you, the sinner, the evil one, the one with the annoyance, the one with the anxiety, the one with the depression, you better confess it. It's not your husband or your wife's fault. It's you and your walk with God. But, so the, 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 the righteous party, the non-annoyed, non-depressed, non-petulant party, doesn't get to sit off smiling, hiding it behind their hand as they're listening to their spouse getting corrected this evening. Because, isn't this great? <laughs> because woe to him by whom the sin comes you better be ready to even if you didn't intend to mess up your spouse's day you gotta we're responsible for each other we bear one another's burdens and if you brought sin into your spouse's life you might want to take the Lord's warning but on the other side, knowing how crafty screw tape is about this, and so then the wife is, or the other person, the wife, the husband, in this situation, they were guilty of the bad attitude, and the innocent spouse was smiling. I then jumped on the innocent spouse, and now the depressed, angry spouse is smiling because they got caught causing me to sin. Guess what? Later in the passage. If he says, I repent, you must forgive him. There's no room. Just like it seems like we can't take a step without a temptation to sin, guess what? You can't take a step without the Lord telling you you can't do it. You're not allowed to be a jerk. You can't pin it on anybody. Everybody's got to straighten up. Everyone's got to please the Lord. And also, when you've done all that is commanded, you say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. Now, here in Romans 12, on the positive side, I took Romans 12, which is a general Christian admonition, wonderful passage, um, and I just put, bracketed, thinking of it in terms of our marriages, rather than just our Christian fellowship. I just want to read through it. For by the grace given to me, I bid each one among you not to think of himself more highly than he or she ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned him. For as in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, though two, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. He who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who contributes in liberality, he who gives aid with zeal, he who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with marital affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Never flag in zeal. Be aglow in the spirit. Serve the Lord. 
Rejoice in your hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay not your spouse evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with your spouse. Now, I added those bracketed things. That's not, that's not in the Bible. In verse 17, you've got the bracket. I wrong. put the bracket in the wrong place. It's repay not. It doesn't say repay evil for evil. <laughs> I, I, that could go down in history as a... Well, I learned in the cult up at North Idaho that we're to repay evil for evil. See, yeah, right here on the page. So mentally move the bracket. Um, it's a wonderful list. What a life. That's how the church is supposed to be living. That's what the Romans 12 is about. It's another expression of membership. And you've got the possibility of actually sleeping with this one. Your spouse is your bedroom companion. You've got an intimacy you'll never have with the rest of the church. And you've got the same opportunity. That list of membership behavior, hospitality, <coughs> marital affection, showing honor to one another. Are we, are we really looking at marriage as some sort of other place that Christianity doesn't apply to, that it's got to be a romantic world and, and it's going to have all the problems of romance? Or are we looking at it as just another aspect of your life? Because you're Christians. We're not anything but Christians. There's no place that the light of Christ does not occupy. And you've got to be giving this over. Now, if you don't, you know, this, obviously we're pushing all the buttons. Take care of this stuff. Take care of it proactively. Do something together about it. If you're the problem, if you're at least the problem, Confess it. If the other person is the problem, it's only one of you, uh, you have to forgive. Um, even if that person keeps coming back needing forgiveness, you have to forgive. How many times? Seven times in a day? I'm quoting Bible here. Um, no. <laughs> Seventy times seven. And then you start counting because you know as soon as he gets to 490, you're going to not forgive him anymore. Because I'm being biblical. <laughs> well, actually, you missed the point. You're going to forgive. And there's also the aspect of what if they're guilty and you're in charge? You say, I believe in Christian hierarchical views of marriage. But the scripture teaches it. You might not like it. Tough bunnies. Uh, I'll stay with the apostles. You can become a Buddhist. I don't, I don't care. Ruin your life. See what, see what happens. We'll compare notes at the end. And uh, you don't have to do what I say. You don't have to think what I think. But the Bible says it's a hierarchical relationship and the husband's going to be in charge. What if the spouse is guilty, the lovely wife, the wife of your dreams, is not being the goddess she seemed to be? Correcting is never fun. A lot of times it doesn't go over well. But even in the church we have to do it. And in Galatians 6 it tells us how. Brethren, if any man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, 
should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Look to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Just because you're the husband, you are responsible. But just because you're the husband doesn't mean you get to be unspiritual and non-gentle in your corrections. You still have to meet the demand here. If you're making a spiritual correction in your kid, in your children, you still have to be the spiritual one, not just the father, not just the parent. So don't think you could go after this. Spiritual first. What's the other one? Gentle second. Third, guarded against temptation in your own right. You have to be non-reactive or temptable in the situation. That whatever the problem is, you're not going to get drawn into it morally, spiritually. And you're going to have the kind of reputation in your home. Now this is, you say, well, the wife has got a little out of line today, and I know I'm not right with the Lord, so it says I've got to be spiritual. I'm going to go quickly and confess my sins so I can be spiritual to go... Uh, hand her read of the riot act. Well, you know, she probably doesn't know because you haven't been spiritual that you're spiritual now. You can't just say, well, honey, I made sure I was spiritual before I came to talk to you. But this being spiritual, you who are spiritual, it's not a state just by grace we step into. You get there by grace, but you live in a spiritual state. You are the kind of person, if you want to be not just someone who prays for your spouse because you don't have the right to speak to them in a spiritual way to correct them. Um, you better live a life that is admirable. They know that you're speaking from the position of someone who walks in the light. And it's got to be evident in your manner. Your gentleness has got to be paramount. You're not like the irritated parent who knows it's right to spank their kids and so they spank their kids but they can only bring themselves to spank their kids when they're ticked. you got to be able to be cold-blooded about discipline. You've got to be spiritual, you've got to be non-reactive, you've got to be guarded against future temptation. If you're not ready to be that way, you're just going to be throwing a hand grenade into the middle of your relationship. You're going to be trying to correct on some... Remember, she probably has, a, in her mind, a moral objection to the way you've been behaving. That's the annoyance. That's the anger. And you come along with sure Bible passages. Yeah, she, she's really wrong. No doubt. You're not the person. You shut the heck up. You... You, you say, I'm going to be using, since I can't correct this situation and be obedient to the Lord in it, I better use the next portion of my life growing in grace till I can finally minister to my family as the Lord told me to. You don't just represent God in the things you want to represent Him in. If she's wrong about X, you don't get to be wrong about how you correct. That would be the first temptation you fell to. You didn't guard yourself against being tempted. You were not gentle and you weren't spiritual. You think God's word means anything to you? Why would it mean anything to you? You didn't obey him and how you corrected. You just want your way. You just don't want the wife who's making the house dark with her attitudes. This is why you go back to yesterday and go, we're 
we're learning to have a default drive of holiness. That we will get there. I will get there. The husband has to have a reputation with his wife that he gives. Up, he will give up everything. He will give up her for the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is more important than any of us. Well, in the next, I wanted to move uh, on to this paying attention bit. I didn't want to eat up too much more time. Uh, this isn't as actually as say as long as it looks. It's the same four pages. But paying attention, I, I, I push these two thoughts together because of most of the need time-wise. Um, but I, it, it's basically in the positive side of things how we're expressing membership, not in guarding against the negative, but building up the positive. The attitudes, we have membership to guard against negative attitudes, and in paying attention, we're trying to join together in growing as a unit, how we view the world, the, the, the positive appraisal of things. Um, because, you know, I used to watch I Love Lucy on TV, and it just it made me cringe, because Lucy was so stupid. <laughs> she would always get into such trouble, and, and Ricky was just always so... How, how, how do you say Lucy? <laughs> Lucy. <laughs> Everything else on TV, because uh, okay, stupid is funny. But then you get the Dick Van Dyke show. You guys don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Dick Van Dyke show. It was the husband. You know uh, what was his wife's name? Laura. 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 Um, <laughs> uh, she was the sensible one in the family, and Dick Van Dyke was the complete the clown, uh, stupid, a uh, stupid one or Fred Flintstone, or whatever you want to pick, or any Disney father. Uh, they're all idiots. And we get great entertainment out of watching families descend into the maelstrom of, of family uh, calamity. We have a policy now whenever um, there's a commercial where a husband is portrayed as stupid, Evan will always say, husbands are always stupid. <laughs> I think Michael Regan had, not Michael Regan, um, Brian Regan, the comedian, has a bit about mm -hmm. stupid husbands and commercials and are always caught in the Venetian blinds in the background. They can't, they can't do anything right. The wife is, oh, I got an idiot for a husband, but I got this, and he's stuck in the curtain. <laughs> um, it's, it's funny. We like laughing at it. It's hell when we're in it. Having someone, having your life be hindered by the, someone or both not paying attention to the world. Um, sometimes men kind of think it's not very masculine to know stuff. Anything more than working on the car, knowing which team I root for, and uh, that I drink Bud. And that's their feast of reason right there. Everything that they're going to think about. Or the wife who just shops. Or um, giggles with her girlfriends. And you go, what, is, is this okay? It's, it's, not, it's not serial murder, yeah. It's not infidelity, yeah. But is there something, if there's something wrong with it? We know in the Bible, we have that awful marriage situation of Nabal and Abigail in Samuel. Nabal, the name means fool, was churlish and ill-behaved, and she was of great understanding and beautiful. <coughs> God worked it out. He had a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. And then she married David. Things worked out for her. 
But we know that that's a tragic situation. Your heart goes out to her when you're reading that story about her husband nearly got the whole family killed because he abused the messengers of David who were just asking for food. So David was going to descend on him like uh, white on rice and he was going to uh, kill everybody. And she saves the day. The wife saves the day. Um, there are women who just really, they're smart, they're capable, they don't want to think about anything of real importance. They really want to point all of their intelligence and their efforts at something that's inane or what they want. Um, we mentioned this proverb about the gold ring and the pig's snout before. Discretion, a woman without discretion. Discretion means having judgment. Being able, a woman, regardless of how beautiful she is, she becomes ugly if she shows she has no judgment. She has no ability to process her world. It says in Timothy, you have something? Mm-hmm. 2 Timothy 3, For among them are those who make their way into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and swayed by various impulses, who will listen to anybody and, never, and can never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That is an indictment on a certain kind of female who is, are susceptible to every religious charlatan to come down the pike, and they will believe anything. They are impulse-driven. They're burdened with sin. Now, we are in the business of trying to build the married aspect on these different avenues. We're going to talk about sex tomorrow night, and we're going to talk about the authority system on Thursday and Friday. But uh, yesterday and today is the world around us, basically, who we are as people, who we are as Christians, and and, and how we function with those most basic points of of, um, advancement. Because every bit of membership we spend together is to advance the relationship, advance the marrying. Because when one of us is dead, it's over. We've crossed the finish line. The marriage is done. No more. She can marry again because it's going to be me. I'm going to die first. Pretty sure. (laughs) Doing my eating habits. Um, that, That short run, we're trying to build up as many of these goods so that the passion and the joy and the satisfaction that you're only going to enjoy here, you get to. I hope you weren't trying to throw that at me. <laughs> missed. Missed. You missed. That's, that's, that's reassuring. For the people on the tape, she missed. You become friends. You gain... You, it, 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 friendship is different than being lovers. Um, lovers is great, but friends with your spouse is tremendous. And... Um, it, it, it has you walking along. Friendship, Lewis defines it very well in Four Loves. You look at things together. You're interested in the same. You've examined the same. You're thrilled by the same. Leslie and I, I go shopping with my wife. Clothes shopping. I go grocery shopping with my wife. Well, I like to be with her. And I like to know her opinions about canned beans. Or... Uh, I want to be able to be able to say, no, don't put that on. And um, you can't wear that in Moscow. Uh, those sorts of uh, guides to her attire. Uh, 
because I, I want to I want to have our minds be sh shared. She comes to the, the the Home Depot with me, so she can she's not going to care that much about the power tools, but she'll be there, and I'm going to bounce things off of her when I'm thinking about it, so I can process my thoughts with her involved because she's a member of my life. She's the Grand Vizier. Now, um, that friendship that's there. Um, is either, uh, is, is, like I said, it's a great thing, but there's a danger. The danger is, and I have it here as a warning, and I have a long section by C.S. Lewis um, on, it comes out of his Four Loves, on friendship, but it describes marriages, uses this, this desire to become, um, we think that the, the good of this oneness destroys or needs to destroy every distinction that exists. It's the membership of a woman and a man. It's not androgyny. We're not trying to drum all those elements out and that Leslie Wilson, the woman, and Evan Wilson, the man, aren't going to be Evan Wilson, a man. And the man aspect will never have some, there's not going to be some points of connection with her that I will have with other men. And same is true with her and other women. She has a membership with other women. I have a membership with other men. Just like we have memberships with the church. We have different kinds of membership. And sometimes the desire to make this a completely closed off, powerful relationship of marriage, one or other of the two starts to tear apart every other aspect of the person's life to make it the same, to make us one in that area as well. Um, I, I probably shouldn't read all of it. Um, there are cultivated women, he says, that try to bring their husband up to her level. In other words, she's college educated, he works on cars, she tries to get him to scrub under his fingernails so she can take him out into a decent restaurant and not have him embarrass her. Get him, get him to meet the right people, read the right books. She assigns his reading. Or there is the reverse, which is, I don't know which is worse. Both are bad. When the men are educated, and they understand what male conversation is, and then the women feel, oh no, everything has to be together. I've been in that movement where back a few decades ago, the church locally was said, you know, why is a women only going to the showers? Let's invite the couples. Everybody goes to the baby showers and the wedding showers. That didn't last long. <laughs> because really, guess what? The men didn't want to go. Nor did the men want to be there. Nor was there anything interesting going on. Okay? Um, but people were thinking, well, we're supposed to be together. No. No. Because you're saying that you, you can't deny the other memberships. The membership you have with her is a sexual kind of membership, and the sexuality of it admits to a man and a woman in it, right? Because that's sex. And that means that they, to stay men and women, so it doesn't become androgyny or homosexual, it leaves the man being a man, and he is going to, because he's a man, he's going to have those other things. He's going to want movies with explosions in them. <laughs> And the wife is going to be crying. Well, if a movie is good, she's going to be crying. 
And not because the explosion was so loud. But because Rhett said, frankly, Scarlet, and walks out into the fog. And Leslie reaches for the tissues. She knows how it ends. Tissues? Because when Tom Hanks comes across the bridge, and you've got mail, and the dog, and they... She's going to cry right now. I'm just no, describing I'm it. Did you, did if you? I watched the movie, I would, though. I think you went too far with the clothes shopping, though. No? <laughs> Gentlemen, do it. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yep. I, I have, I'm not getting, all the time. Not all the time. Sometimes. I like to. I like to. It's not when it's going to be a long try-on session. Women like to take 48 garments into the, into the dressing room. You, wait, you stand out here in the lingerie section and wait for me to come out. You look like a, you're like a creeper. Because you know, I'm, I'm 57 years old. There's no woman excuse for me being there. I'm standing too close to the brassiers and waiting. So if, you, if the women understand... If the women understand, three garments in, out. You've got, you got to report in. <laughs> um, that would be appreciated by everybody. Well, I, I read through that section. I don't, we don't have time to read through it all, but it's a, Lewis is so good at describing what an awful person, the interferer. Instead of membership, it becomes interference. The things you enjoy about the opposite person in your marriage is because she's a woman, because he's a man. Don't undo that. Because those sorts of destructive tendencies, you get a whipped husband you don't admire anymore. You get a, a, a woman who, who get, comes into your male conversations and all the men get a little tired of not being able to talk like men anymore. Because there's a woman, they have to be a gentleman while she's there, and she doesn't know anything. You just all you the, the camaraderie of male companionship is gone. Well, on the last two pages, when we know that going back to gaining wisdom that is a good gain for the two of you, much vexation comes from much knowledge. You know that from Solomon. Much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases in knowledge increases sorrow. And you go, why are you doing this? Well, the vexation, yeah. Vexation is there. Because you understand the world as it really is. And it's not pretty. It's going to Hades in a handbasket. It's falling apart. It's got evil. It's got futility. And you're going to know that. But better than being a fool. The vexation is worth it. But it says in Proverbs 4, the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. Doing without wisdom, doing without knowledge, we, in the New Testament we get the warnings in Peter about, when it says about St. Paul's writing, so also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to understand. You know, somebody's saying, well, why should I have to understand them? Because, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. When you don't understand the world around you, somebody is going to pretend to understand. 
You might pretend to understand. You might just twist it because you're not following authoritative rules of understanding and you're going to be misled and it will be destruction. It's better to be knowing and vexed than foolish and destroyed. It leads families astray. You probably all know religious families where the kids are hating life and by the time they turn 18 they can't think of any place they'd rather be than somewhere else than in their family. And I've known a lot of Christian families where that was the end result of their child rearing and all their Christian catechisms. If you... Basic thing on when the lack exists and it's on one side versus the other. You don't want to avoid the interference. You want to avoid that. But the, the, the way I've recommended to people who have come to me and talked to me about it, I had a woman approach me at an education conference in Memphis one year. Um, her husband was an engineer, and she was in classics, and she couldn't understand why he wasn't interested in classics. He's an engineer. They have no souls. <laughs> but I recommended to her that she talked to him about whatever he designed, engineering-wise, ask him questions about his world. He's interested in his world. She's interested in her world. If you want a wife to be thinking more deeply, you don't give her a stack of C.S. Lewis books and say, honey, I'll get back to you in two weeks, and say, have it all done, and we'll have a quiz. You don't catechize them. You don't, you don't make them chant back the true knowledge, whatever you've come up with. You talk to her about the things that interest her. You talk to him about the things that interest him and ask him the question of, I suggested he worked on bridges, I guess. And I said, well, ask him sometime. In his mind, what's the most beautiful style of bridge that engineers have come up with? You don't understand bridges, but he does, and he would love to tell you. And he'd love to start having a conversation where you guys start looking at the world around you together where it features what he's interested in, not him always being dragged off to what you think reading more Ovid and, you know, Cicero is going to do for him. Because it, 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 it's a growth of him, not a growth of your ideas for him. And it's a growth of her. It's far, you know, there's a, there's a lot of questions. I'm walking around with a wife in Winco, and it's the beans. And it's amazing what sort of philosophy discussions you could get on regarding groceries. About the groceries. The things that she, a world she values, good shopping, good uh, budgeting, uh, provision for the home, um, what would be the argument for buying, the, the argument for buying this cut of meat versus that, even though this is more. It's amazing what you can talk about. In, in other words, your conversations can be gracious to the other person, Drawing them to think more rather than just coasting, because in this case, if they're interested in what they're interested in, they're just going to coast on their, um, their own interests and hope you just don't bother them. If you're going to be in their life, feature what they're interested in the way you would like to see it go. But to avoid the interfering spouse, the best thing is not to make it necessary for your spouse to intervene. Fix yourself. So if you're a woman and you're not into developing your mind, um, you're probably into something else. I have three things here, beauty, household, and friends. 
that's stereotypical what the fallback position when a woman's not into growing and knowledge and grace and insight and understanding she gets involved in her looks fashion whatever she wears how she looks um, her home and her friends that's the that's the that's the life um, a woman needs to know you need to know that not understanding reflects in your looks. All you have to do is go to Walmart. Sit someplace, stand in a particular aisle, and wait. You've been to that site, people of Walmart. Have you been to that site? People take pictures of Walmart shoppers and post them. It's horrifying. It's, it really is. People come out of their houses dressed that way. And then, why, why are they dressed that way? Is there a different code of beauty in Arkansas? I don't think so. Everyone knows it's awful. But they don't understand. And when you don't understand, you don't govern. You don't control. You don't decide how you look. Well, not all of us are pretty. None of us, all of us are, yeah, I'm not a fashion plate by any means, but I want to go out of my house governed. I want to be sure that my face... When they say somebody is slack-jawed, what do they mean? They don't have enough government to even ratchet up their own lower jaw. And you've seen dumb people, right? And they got their tongue kind of... They don't even think to close their mouth. So you, if you're going to think about beauty, realize that understanding your world, governing your world, affects directly your beauty. People know stupid people from looking at them. Now hearing them say a thing. The household, the same thing. The understanding, it's not just a busy place you work in and you prove to your husband that you did a lot today. I, I vacuumed, honey. Can I have the pat on the head? No, you're, you're thinking about it. Because your home, remember he's coming home to you having provided as prime minister guidance to his kingdom. Is there profit in it or has he just watched busy work go on? Make work. And your friends, if you're an understanding woman, you'll have understanding women friends. Because if you have a bunch of real housewives of Beverly Hills or real housewives of Orange County, what are all those women like? They're all gorgeous. They all have huge tracts of land. They all have spray-on tans. And uh, they're all idiots. And that's the kind of life your husband will have. This conspiracy of dunces that you collect around yourself. You start to think about life. You start to enjoy women who read books. Who want to be in a book club. Who want to talk about their Christian lives together. Who want to be in a Bible study. Something. Men, on the other hand escape from thinking about life in generally sports and hobbies. Uh, both are valid, just like beauty and homes and friends are valid. We're not talking about invalidity, we're talking about how you grow in those things. What you do in sports is you are expressing your desire to expand a fiefdom. It's conquest. You take the territory from the other team. You march down the field, your little army lines up against their little army, and you push them down, you hurt them, you take away yardage. Now it's just pretend. You get a trophy. You don't actually get to rule the other end of the field. You don't pass laws when you're done. I now claim the rest of this field for the Seahawks. 
and we will, for the next year, rule this end of your stadium. You don't actually own that. It's pretend. It's play. Which is fine. But you have a bigger and more important empire. Your wife and your children and your possessions. That's where you really prove your cojones, your real conquest, your really ability to rule. Don't go off and play at rule. And when you're playing at a, when you're doing a rule that requires the, the fate of these people is at stake, it's going to be uh, well, crucial that you know what you're doing. The wise, poor and wise youth versus the old and foolish king. And you don't want to be an old and foolish king uh, circumstances. Your hobbies, we, we escape into the corner of the roof sometimes because there's a contentious and fretful woman inside. And so you go to the garage and you play with your train set because that's what men do. They love to have, I always wanted a train set, really big ones with all the terrain and stuff. Or you have your little painted miniature soldiers, or you have your, your card collection, or your, what else can you do? Work on your car. You have a hobby. Now, hobbies are wonderful because they, that's a kingdom that doesn't give you any back chat. The citizens of that kingdom are completely obedient. <laughs> you can push them wherever you want. You can tell them what to do. You can paint them. Um, it, it, starts to, it starts to tear you down if you don't go back and consider whether or not you have ruled your real kingdom correctly. Sports and hobbies are these play areas of kingdom expansion or kingdom rule. The competition in sports is kingdom expansion. The hobby and acquisition, the doing of the hobby is a rule of, your, of a fake kingdom. Deliver yourself the right to play at these other things. You, to play at video games, to play at sports, to play at your hobbies. Those are all fine if you've ponied up and ruled your kingdom that you actually have correctly. The, uh, the last thing uh, is that there's a degree of honor. When men, when men pony up with some attention paid to their world, when it sounds like what comes out of husband's mouth actually makes sense, because remember the reputation we have from Disney films, um, when a wife starts to look at her husband with a certain degree of, oh, I'm so glad he's smart. Not so I'm so glad he's got biceps, or I'm so glad he can pick up the fridge. Um, <laughs> but this wonderful passage in Kings. Um, did you want to? I want to read it. She wants to read it. Okay. She didn't get to say much, so she's. Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with, ca with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind, and Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king which he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings, which he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, The report was true, which I heard in my own land, of your affairs and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came, and my own eyes had seen it, and, behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and property surpassed the report which I heard. Happy are your wives. Happy are these your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. 
Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. And the, um, I think the nutshell of that is that Queen of Sheba kind of had the hots for Solomon, because he was so excellent, smart, capable. That's it? That's all I was going to say. Okay. So brains are hot. <laughs> Actually, there is a, that's the old myth about Solomon and Balkis. Her name is Balkis in the legends. Um, that they had a king, the, the royal line of Ethiopia, so supposedly came by an illicit relationship between Solomon and Balkis. We have no biblical evidence for that. But this story, she recognizes how wives must be with this man, this smarts, this answer to things. There wasn't anything, she was ready with questions. He was ready with answers, and he answered everything. And it describes his wisdom in other places. He knew everything from the cedar in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows from the wall. He was a scientist, he was a thinker, he was a philosopher. Now, also a bit of a romantic, but uh, that, that's uh, uh, his weak spot. The, the idea that guidance isn't, or thought on things, isn't the slow deadening of life in some, oh, that's just my husband sitting in his chair reading again. Because if your membership in this is the two of you are pursuing questions, some you're allowing the pursuit elsewhere with your friends, the membership you have with others, but you're coming back together and as men and women who share this life at that grocery store, at that shoot, uh, uh, clothing apparel store, in this project in the home and in the yard, we're covering everything and our worship together as Christians. If we're building all that and discussing everything, the excellences of a husband, the excellences of a wife, what does it say in Proverbs 31? She, uh, what is it, the... You, many women have done excellently, but you surpassed them all. That's what mm -hmm. the husband says. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. We know that the good times, the love and the passion, the sex, the, the affection, the friendship, all of these things are built on whether you lay behind just the raw reactive life, hoping that life just turns out if I kind of go to work and have a job and come home and we do weekend stuff on the weekend. If we don't think, if we don't draw together, if we don't make an effort this way, it's all going to be okay. It's the, it's the American promise. But the Christian thing realizes all of that has got sin and futility and we've got this possibility of enjoying heaven on earth with this woman or with this man. Um, and it's, a, uh, it's played to better by a couple that communicates this constant appraisal of the world around them. And you're the Grand Vizier or you're the Village Idiot, one of the two. Uh, are you a problem? Are you a criminal in his kingdom? Or are you a real aid? Are you sometimes the aid that needs to be asked what is right to do because you understand the kingdom as the wife better than the husband does? In many cases. Um, and it's not insubordination. It's that's what you brought her on staff to do. She's the grand vizier. So, well, let's uh, 
that, that's it for the, we've come to a close. Um, you know, you say, well, that was a long two hours. Um, I know I was wonderfully, wonderfully blessed. Uh, but um, tomorrow will be shorter. We'll be talking about sex, and you won't want me to go on very long about that because you'll be so embarrassed. Uh, so, and it's only one subject, so it won't go. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this evening. We're grateful in your son's name. Amen.